Acts chapter 5. We're going to be uh, in the first 16 verses of that chapter today. So, starting in verse 1, it says, But a, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, Pete, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your, in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were healed. You know, I really like being a GP on the North Norfolk coast. There's some really great things about it. It's a great location. Um, the practice tends to be a little bit less busy than a inner city practice, and the patients are relatively well behaved. <laughs> but there's one thing that I don't like about, about it, and that is that I often have to deal with death on a regular basis. And before you think it, that's hopefully not to do with my skills as a doctor. <laughs> but it's got to do with the fact that in Munsley and the surrounding areas, a lot of people retire there. Uh, so they live their later life in that part of the world. And so they bring their diseases with them, and they often meet their demise uh, in and around my practice. But oftentimes we get the death of someone that's unexpected, like a younger person who's in their 30s, who dies when they're asleep in their bed. Uh, there are colleagues of mine who've had deaths of children. And it's those unexpected deaths that really grab your attention 
as a doctor. They make you think, oh, what could I have done differently in that situation? How could I have helped that patient? It really grabs your attention, affects you. And I bring that up because in the main bulk of our text today, uh, Luke is describing a situation where two people die unexpectedly. The death of Ananias and Sapphira, this husband and wife that were in the church in Jerusalem. And in many ways, this text is in a bit of an odd place because the church in Jerusalem is doing very well. Uh, It was birthed on the day of Pentecost. Many people are getting saved. Uh, The church is very fruitful in prayer, in fellowship, in breaking bread, which John will speak about next week. And people were giving of their possessions, giving them to the apostles to be distributed out to the poor in the church. We learned last week from John that there were these people who were in the church and they were selling their houses and their lands and they were giving the proceeds of their houses and their lands to the apostles to give to the poor. There are some commentators that think that people were selling their land and their possessions at that time because it was the year of jubilees in the Jewish calendar. So people's land and their houses were worth more so that if they sold them, they'd get more money to give to the church. Whether that's the case or not, the reality is is that these people didn't hold dearly their possessions not at least in comparison to the treasure that they'd been given in Christ. And so they came to the apostles' feet and they laid the proceeds before the apostles' feet. And this is symbolic because when the person does that, they're saying, I'm laying this aside. This doesn't belong to me anymore. This is is the Lord's. I want the Lord to use this money for his will. And the fact that the apostles didn't receive it in their hands near their hearts and they received it on the floor is again another picture that the apostles didn't want to hold dearly this money that was being given to them. They were saying, Lord, this is yours. It belongs to you. You do with it what you want. And so the church is in a very good place. There's no one that has any need in the church in Jerusalem. So this is why this text that we're going to deal with today is a bit like a sucker punch. It's like a knockout blow in a boxing match or when England cricket team loses three wickets in a row, which is not unusual, or your football team loses in the last minute. It kind of gets your attention and and makes you think, what's going on here? Why is this happening? And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing through Luke. He is laying down this text to make the Christians in Jerusalem and us stop and think and reflect. And he has two aims in doing that. The first aim is that he doesn't want the Christians in Jerusalem or us to become complacent. Let's read a couple of verses that Paul wrote in the New Testament that speaks of this. In Galatians 6, verse 3, it says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Or in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 2, it says, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, 
he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And these verses were taught by Paul because there's a, there can be a tendency that Christians can become too overconfident. They can think that they are somebody that they're not. They can think that they've reached the pinnacle of Christian life and they don't need to grow anymore or walk forward anymore in the Lord. And so the Spirit through Luke in describing this scene to us is laying down strong biblical doctrine to stop Christians from becoming complacent. He's saying to them and us, don't take for granted what you've been given in Christ. The second aim is that he wants to remind the church why she exists and what she is to do. And I say that because what we're going to see in this text today is a courtroom scene. We're going to see the defendants, Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to see the judge, Luke. And this scene, this uh, microcosm, speaks of a bigger reality that involves all humanity. Every human that's born in this world has been and is going to be, is born in their first father, Adam. They're born as sinners. And they are going to go to judgment before God. As it says in Hebrews 9, verse 27, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And so the Spirit, through Luke, is laying down in describing this scene very strong doctrine about the gospel. And he's saying, look, you guys, this is the message that you've been given. This is why you exist. You need to take this message to the world and make many disciples of many nations. These are his two aims, and he's going to achieve these two aims by giving us four reflections about God. And you'll see that on your highlight, uh, the, the sort of uh, yeah, the notes that have been given out. Reflection number one is in verses um, one and two, where we see that God is a God who gives salvation. Reflection number two is from verse three down to verse 11, where it talks about God being a judge. The third reflection is that God is a God who is to be respected. And we see that in verse 5 and verse 11. And then the last reflection is in verses 12 to 16, where we see that God is a God who confirms his message. So let's deal with reflection number one. I'm just going to read the first two verses again. It says there, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we have introduced to us this couple that were in the church at the time, Ananias and Sapphira. We're not told too much about them. We're not told how old they are, how long they've been married what their background is or their history, but we are told that they had a possession, and that word for, for possession there means a piece of land or a field. And they sold that, and then they entered in together into deception by holding back part of the proceeds for themselves. And they took a part of the proceeds to the apostles' feet, 
And they were trying to come across as if that was exactly how much they sold the field for. They are being deceptive. They are, as we'll see in a a moment, lying. They're being hypocritical. Now, when we see this scene being introduced to us, what does the Spirit want us to think of when he describes Ananias and Sapphira? Well, I think he wants us to think about two parables that Jesus taught, the parable of the rich young ruler, uh, which is in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18, and the parable of the wheat and tares, which is in Matthew 13. So let's think about those two parables. So the parable of the rich young ruler, this rich young uh, ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I enter into the kingdom of God? And it's interesting when you read each three of those descriptions of that parable, it's like the rich young ruler saying, how do I know you've given me eternal life before the foundation of the world? How do I know you've given it to me now? And how do I know that I'm going to have it in the future? And they go through a discussion about the Ten Commandments, and and Jesus says there's one thing that you haven't done. I want you to go away, I want you to sell all your possessions, and I want you to give those the proceeds to the poor. And of course, the rich young ruler doesn't do that. He goes away grieved. And what this parable teaches us is that being in the kingdom of God, having eternal life, is not about following rules, but it is about a radical change in our heart that leads to radical behavior. And so this rich young ruler, he didn't give of all of his possessions to the poor because he wasn't saved. He didn't have true saving faith. And he couldn't give of all of his possessions because he didn't have the treasure of the gospel in his heart. He was not saved. And so we see through this parable the reality that unbelievers don't give of the fullness of their possessions. This isn't to say that believers don't struggle with money. Believers do struggle with money. We struggle with knowing how much to give, when to give it, who we should give it to. But what I am saying, and I think what the parable of the rich young ruler teaches, is that if you are genuinely born again, and God leads you to to sell all your possessions and give it to the poor, you would do it because you have the treasure of the gospel in your heart. And this is exactly what we're seeing in the Jerusalem church. We're seeing that these people, because they are born again and they're saved and they have the treasure of the gospel, they're giving everything away for the poor. But what do we see with Ananias and Sapphira? We don't see that, do we? We see that their spirit is against what the spirit of God is doing in that church. We see that their God is money and not God himself. We see that the fruit of their life is bad. So I would say that Ananias and Sapphira are not saved. They are unbelievers in the church of Jesus Christ. Now this idea that unbelievers are in our midst as churches is something that Jesus taught 
I believe in the parable of the wheat and tares. In Matthew 13, Jesus teaches this parable where he says that a farmer goes to a field and sows seed, and that seed grows up, but he goes away and then he comes back and then he sees that not only is there wheat there, but there's tares there or weeds there in the field. And the representation in in that parable is that the wheat is believers and the weeds are unbelievers. And he says an enemy has sowed the weeds. So whether you believe that the field is the world or the field is the church, the reality is, is that before Jesus comes back, there are always going to be believers and unbelievers. And they're always going to be intermingled together in society, in the world, and also in the church. Because in that parable, the, the man's helper says, shall we go and take the weeds out for you, sir? And he says, no, don't go and take them out, because if you take them out, you will uproot the wheat as well. And so that speaks to me that unbelievers can be in our midst. They can be in our churches. And so this idea that unbelievers are amongst us is not an unusual teaching in the New Testament. But why is he doing this? Why is the Holy Spirit, through Luke, bringing Ananias and Sapphira to the surface in the church of Jerusalem? Because I believe as unbelievers, they could have just really walked away from the church and had nothing to do with it anymore. But the reason why the Spirit of God is bringing Ananias and Sapphira to the surface, listen, is because God wants to expose their need. He wants to expose that because they've been born in Adam, that they are sinners, that they fall short of God's glory, and they are dead in their sins and transgressions. And make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, whenever an unbeliever walks through that door, either in this building or at Hillcrest, God's priority is not first that they enjoy the coffee, or that they enjoy the community or that they enjoy the service. No, his first priority is to show them that they are sinners, that they have a need for salvation. And this is exactly what Luke is doing, the Spirit is doing through Luke, in showing us this exposure of Ananias and Sapphira. God wants to show them that they're sinful, so that they can see that he is a God that gives salvation. When Adam sinned in the beginning, brothers and sisters, when he disobeyed God and sin came into the world, God would have been entirely just at that point to leave humanity and say, you're going to just go to destruction. You're going to go to eternal judgment and hell. But that is not the story of the Bible, is it? We see directly after Adam's fall that God gives a promise to Adam and Eve that their seed would crush the head of Satan. We see the promise of salvation in the sons of promise, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see it in the story of Israel. When Israel's redeemed from Egypt, God takes them out of Egypt, out of the world, and he saves them, he redeems them, and he persists in relationship with them. And of course, this all culminates in Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, coming to the earth, totally God, totally man, living a perfect life for us, going to the cross for sinners, dying for sinners, 
and rising again for sinners. God indeed is a God who gives salvation. And he is saying to Ananias and Sapphira, you're sinful. I want you to see that I give salvation. Maybe you've come to this service today or you're listening online and you have no idea why you're listening to this uh, you know, middle-aged Englishman preaching a sermon. Maybe your family has forced you to come along or your friends have forced you to come along. Maybe you've actually been involved in deception in coming to this church service because you've lied about wanting to come but you don't really want to come. Well, I'll tell you why you're here. You're here because God wants you to see that you're sinful. He wants you to see that you fall short. He wants you to see that he's the God that gives salvation. So that's our first reflection. Let's move on to our second, starting in verse 3, where we see that God is a judge. I'll read that section again. It says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Now, in this section, which goes on uh, up to verse 12, we'll come to the other verses later, the first thing that grabbed my attention when I read this section is this idea that Peter speaks to Ananias, that he's lied to the Holy Spirit, and he's lied to God. And the question that I ask myself is, is it possible to lie to God? Is it actually a reality that you can lie to him? Well, let's speak of of some verses that speak on this. In uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, this should be on slide 3, it says, And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Then in 1 John 3, 20, it says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And then in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Now these verses plainly teach us, brothers and sisters, that God sees everything. There's nothing that's hidden from him. No creature on this earth can get away with anything without God seeing what they're doing. It also teaches us that God knows all things and that he is sovereign over all things. And so there's a very real reality that you cannot hide anything from God. You cannot create a false reality that God does not know about. So in a very real sense, it is impossible to lie to God. You cannot make something up that God does not know. So the emphasis that Peter's getting at here, 
when he says these things is not the effect that Ananias and Sapphira's actions has on God because I don't think you can lie to God. The emphasis is on their actions and, and, and he's trying to point the finger at them and expose them for what they are doing in using this language. I can just imagine Ananias and Sapphira in the church when all these people were giving their money away or selling their lands and their houses and they thought to themselves, hmm, we need to do something about this. We need to probably copy these people in some sort of way to kind of come across as if we're still like them. And so I tell you what we'll do, we'll sell some land, but we won't give all of the money to the apostles. We'll we'll hold most of it back. And so they thought that they could get away with this. They tried to create this false reality that they thought that they would really be successful in. In verse, um, where does it say? In verse 9, where Peter says to Savara, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? And that word for test there in the Greek gives this idea that they actually thought they could get away with it. They actually thought that they could create this false reality and carry on in their hypocrisy. It reminds me a bit of when my children go to the sweet cupboard at home in the kitchen. And in our, in our home, there's two entrances to our kitchen. And one of the entrances, I can sit there in the sort of at my computer screen, and I can see the children walk past, you know, and go to the, uh, the biscuit tin or the sweet tin. And I can go often and say, who's been in the sweet tin? Who's been in the biscuit tin? And one of my children will say, oh, not me, Daddy. And what are they doing? They're trying to create a false reality. But I know the truth. I know what's happened. And that's exactly what's happening with Ananias and Sapphira. They're trying to create this false reality, but God already knows about it. He already knows about their deception. It's a deception that Ananias was totally responsible for. Because Peter says there, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? It's a deception that he had help with because Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And the idea of Satan filling Ananias' heart gives this idea that Satan had some kind of control over Ananias' heart. And again, this is another reason why I don't believe that Ananias and Savara were saved, because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Satan can't control our hearts. He can influence us, but he can't fill our hearts up like he did with Ananias. And then also, this deception is challenged with mercy. Because when Peter's asking these questions, when he's saying, why did you sell this land? You didn't need to do it. It was in your control. Why do this? This is not questions out of surprise. This is questions to try and invoke some kind of guilt in Ananias. Some kind of conviction of sin. The Lord is being merciful to Ananias and Sapphira. He asked Sapphira the question that we just went through. Now we'll see in a minute that the, the result of this sin in their lives gets a very swift consequence. 
So I want you to see that God's mercy is there right before the end. God's mercy for sinners is always there right up until the end. There is an end that we'll come on to in a minute. But God's mercy is always there for sinners who are willing to repent. So what happens? It says in verse 5, doesn't it, that Ananias, when he heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. The same happens to Sapphira uh, in verse 9, where she doesn't, she's not honest about what's happened. Peter says, look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. So there's unfortunately no repentance in Ananias and Sapphira's life. They don't turn from their sin. And what happens is, is they get a swift consequence. And the consequence is that God kills them, that they breathe their last. And they are actually getting what they deserve. Because Romans 6, verse 23, says, The wages of sin is death. I agree, this is very swift. It's very quick. But they are getting what they deserve. The quickness and the swiftness is to speak a specific Lesson to us, which we'll come on to in a moment. But also notice that when they die, some men come in and they're wrapped up and they're taken out and they're buried. So we see here that even in the midst of being with enemies, Christians treat their enemies with respect. They treat unbelievers with love. And with care. And the idea of them being wrapped up and taken out and buried is an act of respect. Notice that they're also buried next to each other. I think it's in verse, um, verse 10. And think about this they're buried next to each other so that the story of Ananias and Sapphira will always be remembered. When people go to their grave to, 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 I don't know, when they see them, they see this couple there. Oh, yeah, that's the couple that was killed by God in a church service. Do you remember that? That was seriously crazy. But it will help people to remember what happened. Now, of course, when Peter's doing this, when this judgment comes from Peter, obviously God is judging Ananias through and Sapphira through Peter. There's no way that Peter could do this in his own human power. And the Bible makes no apologies, brothers and sisters, and makes no excuses for the reality that God is a judge. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 17, it says this, it says, I said to myself, God will bring judgment both, uh, both onto the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Then in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, it says, 
This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And then in Revelation 20, verses 12 and 15, it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. These verses make it very plainly clear, brothers and sisters, that God is a judge. What does he do when he judges? Well, he makes a clear distinction between good and between evil, and he brings moral justice to evil. So he deals with it, he takes it out of the way so that its effects are not there anymore, and he completely removes it. This is what he does when he judges. We see in this situation with Ananias and Sapphira, God makes a distinction between good and evil, and he brings justice to the couple. We see it in the past in the nation of Israel, when Israel sinned against God, God judged them by removing the evil. He took them and put them in another country for 70 years, bringing moral justice. And he will bring this judgment in the future on judgment day. When every person that's ever lived will stand before him and he will make a clear distinction between good and evil and he will remove evil out of the way forever. Hallelujah. This is what he does. Now, we don't like judgment. We don't like the idea that God is a judge. We like God to be a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy, but we don't like God to be a judge. But he has to be a judge, brothers and sisters. If there's any evil, if there's any unrighteousness in the universe, if God is holy, if he is righteous, if he is perfect, he has to deal with it. If he doesn't deal with it, he's not holy. He's not righteous. He's not perfect. And he's not a God worthy to be worshipped. The problem with us is that when we think of judgment, we think of it through our sinful lenses. We think of judgment the way that we judge. We judge in an unkind way. We judge in an unrighteous way. We judge in an unholy way. That's why we don't like it. But you see, when God judges, it is perfect. It is holy. It is righteous. And it's worthy, listen, to be celebrated. There's one act in human history where God judged that is worthy of celebration for eternity. And that is when Jesus was judged on the cross. Jesus was judged on the cross. When he hung there, he was being judged for the sins of the world. And I believe that the Spirit through Luke, his intention in this judgment is to turn the people's hearts back to the judgment of Christ on the cross. So God's judgment reveals the gospel. 
It reveals the good news that Jesus himself, the Son of God, was judged for our sin on the cross. Hallelujah. And my question to you in this place, or if you're listening online, is how is your sin going to be judged? Is it going to be judged like Ananias and Sapphira in eternal death in hell? Or is it going to be, or has it been judged already in Jesus? And that you enter into that through turning from your sin and believing what Jesus did on the cross is enough. So that when God looks at you on judgment day, he doesn't see your sin, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. And he sees that your sin was judged in Christ so that you can spend eternity with him in glory. God indeed is a judge. Going on to our third reflection, in verse um, 5 and verse 11, we see that God is a God who's worthy to be respected. And I'm just going to read those verses again. It says, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And then in verse 11 it says, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So in these verses we see what the result is of this situation. And what I want you to first notice is that there's a distinction made by the Spirit that the the church heard it and everyone else heard it. So again, this speaks of the reality that both the intention for this text is not just for believers, but it's for unbelievers as well. And again, I would say that this is another reason, it's a side note, about why I believe that Ananias and Sapphira weren't saved, because if they were saved, and it's all about church discipline, why would that have any relevance to unbelievers? But that's just a side note. But the result is that this fear was invoked in people who heard of this story. And this idea of fear here is this idea of reverence, it's this idea of respect, this idea of revering God and respecting God. For what? Well, the way he deals with sin, the way he deals with the transgressions of humanity. We've already seen how he deals with unbelievers, this reality that everyone born into this world is sinful, that they will be judged, and if their sin is not dealt with, that they will go to hell. They will. But what about Christians? Why should Christians respect and revere God when it comes to how he deals with sin? Well, before I tell you what I think this is teaching, I want to tell you what I think it's not teaching. I don't believe, brothers and sisters, that Christians have to go around their life scared that they're going to lose their salvation because of the presence of sin in their life. I believe that the New Testament is clear, that once you're born again, you're always born again, and you will persevere through God's help onto glory. Many of the warning verses, if not, I would say probably all of the warning verses in the New Testament, are not addressed to born-again Christians. They're addressed to unbelievers in the church. Ananias and Sapphira, these people... That's what those warning texts are are there for. 
And there's very good theological reasons why I believe that once you are genuinely saved, you're always saved. I don't like that saying, but anyway. But it's all to do with what Jesus did on the cross. I want to draw you back to the cross. Whenever we preach, we always want to be centered upon the cross because that's the pinnacle. That's the pinnacle of history. The pinnacle of history is the cross. It is not the internet. It is not even, I would say, necessarily Jesus coming back a second time. It is the cross. Because it's only through the cross that we can know this God. On the cross, do you realize, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus was there, all of your sin was put on him? Not just past, not just sin now, but sin in the future. It was all placed on him. I'll read a couple of sections of scripture that I believe teach this. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 6, it says, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for, listen, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These verses, I believe, plainly teach that when Jesus was hanging on that cross, he took upon himself all of our sin. Not just a little bit, all of it. When he took the wrath of God for us, when he took the punishment for us, when his body was broken and his blood was shed, when he died, he died a substitutionary death for us. So that he could say on the cross, it is finished. That means, listen, that if you're born again, if you've put your faith in Jesus, your sin is done. It is forgiven completely and entirely in Christ and does not have to be dealt with again. It's perfect. It's a perfect sacrifice. Once and for all and forever. So if you believe you have the security that you have that salvation, you'll never lose that security because Jesus, the very king of the universe, took it upon himself for you. But does that mean that God doesn't take seriously sin in believers' lives? Well, no, he does. He does take it seriously. But he doesn't dangle our salvation over our head and says, if you muck up, if you make a mistake, it's gone. He doesn't do that. The way he deals with our sin in our life is through discipline. And I just want to read some verses that teach this from Hebrews chapter 12. You can turn there if you want to. If you don't, you can listen. It says, from verse 4, it says, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to us as to sons. 
My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all, listen, all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have and had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of our spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our, listen, our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. These verses teach, brothers and sisters, that all true believers will be disciplined by God. Why? Because all true believers struggle at some point in their life with sin. We struggle to repent of sin. We struggle to, um, or we, we, we resist God dealing with sin. And what happens when we do that, listen, is that we grow distant from God. We grow distant in fellowship with him. We lose our assurance of our relationship and salvation in him. We don't lose our security because that's in Jesus, but we lose our assurance. But God, because of his great love for us, he knows that. And so he uses discipline in our lives to draw us back, to restore us. And he can use any situation. He can use bad situations where things are going wrong. He can use mundane situations where nothing's changing. He can use good situations where the consequences are overwhelming for us. Any situation he can use to draw us back and to restore us. Maybe there are some of you in here today who are going through those kinds of situations yourself. You're going through situations in your life where you think, this is just really intense. This is just really overwhelming. I don't know what's going on. What is going on, Lord? How do you know you're being disciplined in that? Well, you know, listen, because the Spirit of God will be convicting you of sin. The whole purpose of discipline, of God's discipline for Christians, is to restore us. So the Spirit will be convicting you of sin. He will be showing you sin that you need to deal with. He will be encouraging you to repent and to turn away from it, to go back to God and receive the forgiveness that he's already given us in Christ and to be changed. As it says in 1 John 1, 9, very famous verse, which actually is about God's discipline. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, when I was studying for this text, I really felt impressed upon my heart that God wanted to say to us, that he wants this fellowship to be a place where everyone is so confident in the gospel message that they can confess their sins to him and confess their sins to each other. And that we are a fellowship where when we have someone confess their sins, we don't judge them, but we say, brother, sister, I want to walk with you in that and I want to believe what the scriptures say that God is going 
to change you. I want you to think in your chairs for a moment, is that your experience of Servants Church? I know what my experience is. I have no problem confessing my sin before God. But I definitely have a problem confessing it to you. Because I feel scared about what you're going to think. And the thing is, is that I really feel that I have to face that fear. That I have to deal with it. And as a leader in the church, it's my responsibility to take a lead in how this works. So I'm going to confess my sin to you. Now. Don't all run out. But the reality is, is that I struggle with escapism. I watch things on YouTube that are pointless. I struggle with coveting other people's lives that I think have a better life than me. I struggle with getting angry and frustrated and impatient in relationships. And I struggle with being a coward when it comes to preaching the gospel. Now that feels kind of uncomfortable, me saying that. But the reality is that even as I say that, I hear those verses in my heart that says, if I confess my sin before God, he will change me. And if I hear this verse in James 5.16, it says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The question is, can you do that? Can you confess your sins to God and to each other? The other question I have is, when you hear that about me, do you then start thinking, John, why is this guy an elder candidate? Or, I don't want to be around this guy. He's weird. Or are you thinking, you know what, I don't struggle with the same thing as you, Adam, but I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I want to walk with you and trust that God's going to change you and change me on to glory. This is what he wants for our church. And there is a sense of urgency about this. And there's a sense of urgency in our lives and as a church because you can resist God's discipline. In God's sovereign plan for the church, he has given Christians the ability to resist his discipline. And the thing about this, the scary thing about this, is if you resist God's discipline over and over and over again, he can chasten you onto death. What does that mean? It means that if you resist his discipline, you can get to a place in your life where God will cause the physical death of your body and take your redeemed soul to be with him so that the gospel is not brought into disrepute anymore. Some of my brothers uh, believe that this Ananias and Sapphira uh, situation is an example of uh, Christians being chastened on to death. I don't personally have that conviction, but it's a valid interpretation of this section. Another example would be the Christians in the Corinthian church that were getting drunk when they had communion. And some of them, it says, fell asleep and they got ill and fell asleep. That is chastening onto death. I don't fully know how this happens, so I'm, don't go away worried that this is going to happen to you this week. But I would say that the scriptures do allude to it. So there is a sense of urgency when it comes to discipline. So if you're in this place this morning and you feel that God is convicting you of a sin, if you feel you're in his discipline, please don't leave this place without praying with someone to have that dealt with. At the end of this message, I'll be available, other people will be available. Pray. God wants to restore every one of his children 
to right fellowship with him. Now, lastly, our fourth and final reflection is in um, the rest of our text. I'll just get back to Acts. From verse 12 to 16, I'll read that again. It says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. Now, Luke sort of leaves this situation with Ananias and Sapphira and begins to describe the acts of the apostles in Jerusalem. He talks about the fact that many signs and wonders were done through them, that believers were getting saved, that people were being healed of illnesses and sicknesses. And so this section of scripture is showing us that God confirms his message of the gospel through signs and wonders. What you see in Acts is a pattern where there's um, a truth about the gospel that's revealed and then you often get these sections where it talks about the apostles doing these signs and wonders. And that's there to confirm that what you've just learnt is really real and is really true. And Jesus talked about this, uh, that this would happen in Mark 16. I'm just going to read a few verses from there. He says, in Mark 16, verse 15, he says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs, listen, will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus teaches here that when the gospel's preached and people believe, that is confirmed through signs and wonders. And so in Acts 5, we see that the Holy Spirit through Luke puts this section here to confirm that what you've just learned about the gospel, particularly when it comes to judgment, is real, is true, and it should be taken seriously. And it should be believed by every Christian down the generations. But also, this section of scripture is there, listen, to confirm the uniqueness of Peter's apostleship. Now, the, the Acts sort of gives us the, the idea of two unique apostles. There was Peter, who was the apostle to the Jews, and Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, they, when I say they were unique, that doesn't mean that they were loved by God more or that they were more holy, or that they had a higher standing before God. They just had a very unique ministry. So Paul, he wrote a lot of the uh, New Testament. He took the gospel to the Gentile world. Peter wrote New Testament scripture, and he was a very prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. And so it says there, look, that people brought uh, um, unwell people so that the shadow of Peter could fall on them. And this speaks of these unique miracles that were being done through Peter, that people would lie down, Peter would walk past, and as his shadow went past these people, they would be healed. So he did these unique miracles. 
And so there would have been people, listen, who thought that what happened to Ananias and Sapphira was fake, that it wasn't real, that it was all a joke, that it was kind of like, um, you know, uh, Peter lying, that it was all maybe witchcraft. But no, no, he's saying, no, this is real. This guy did this unique thing. God worked this unique thing through him because he's already worked unique things through him. This shows very clearly that God, listen, is a God who confirms his message. And I want you to think about this as we end. A perfect God with a perfect message in the gospel still chooses to confirm that through signs and wonders. Think about that. It's perfect. It's a perfect message. He doesn't need to confirm it, but yet he still chooses to do that. What does it say about God? It says that he's so loving, he's so gracious, he's so merciful, that he wants no one to have any doubt whatsoever that what he's saying about Jesus is true. What it shows us is that as Christians, this God that we serve is so much better than anything we could ever have in this world. Because this perfect God, with this perfect message, still confirmed it through signs and wonders. And lastly, this idea that God is a God that confirmed his message through signs and wonders should be the catalyst for all our evangelism. When we speak to unbelievers, whether it's in uh, personal relationships or out on the streets, the focus often is on us. It's about how we feel. It's about our responsibility to do it. It's about our so-called strengths to do it. And we often don't feel good all the time, so we don't do it because we don't feel like we're in the right place. But listen, God is always in the right place. God is always in the right place, and he's confirmed his message through these signs and these wonders. That should be the catalyst for us to go out and tell people whatever we feel. However weak we feel, however poor we feel, our God, in confirming his perfect message, will do it through our own weaknesses. So our whole theme in wrapping up this message, brothers and sisters, in Acts is Jesus continued. And Jesus is in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father. He's been resurrected. He's ascended into heaven And he now reigns in heaven. And his ministry of salvation continues. It continued first through these guys in Acts, and it's continued throughout the church age for the last 2,000 years. And this message today, this text today, confirms Jesus' continued ministry. It confirms that even after he was resurrected, God still wanted people to see that they were sinners, that they needed salvation. He wanted people to see judgment. He wanted Christians to walk righteously and not walk in his discipline unfaithfully. And he wants his believers to go out and tell people about this message.